Saturday 24. Um, for those of you who were here last week, um, know that you didn't go through some sort of time portal, right? I, I imagine that there were some people who were sitting here going, did we not read this exact same passage last week? Um, yes, we did. We read the same passage last week. And so we are, uh, uh, hopefully, the plan is to finish up Genesis 24 this morning. Um, we will uh, we'll see what happens. So um, what, are we, what are we looking at? What are we observing from Genesis chapter 24? For those of you who might not have been here last week, um, first off, anything that I say over the next few minutes is going to serve as a point of synopsis. Okay, I'm going to seek to summarize what we saw and where we were last week. But um, as I try to do as often as I can, um, lean into the podcast. If you were not here last week, if you missed... Um, check out online um, our website. You can find a list of um, last week's sermon as well as um, as well as previous series. It's just a great opportunity to to go back and to, um, to to lean into and embrace the discipleship that we are trying to make available outside of the Sunday morning um, setting for you and for others. So thanks to all the guys who made that happen, getting that up each week, so that if you aren't here. You can go back and you can catch up. Um, We're in Genesis chapter 24, um, and as we kind of continue this journey through this particular chapter, we are connecting back with our big idea from last week. And so what do we observe from Genesis chapter 24? Well, um, I gave it to you last week. If you have your same notepad as you uh, did last week, you can turn back and you'll see it there. But um, in case you weren't, here's what we are observing over the course of Um, This, the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. Strength for practice of a life of faith. Okay, strength for a life, uh, for for practice, for a life of faith is rooted in a bold confidence of the nature of our creator. Strength for the practice of a life of faith. Okay, so that's kind of a loaded statement there in and of itself, isn't it? It is this, that um, the life of faith looks a particular way and we as God's people are to lean into and practice it. So, um, that being said, where does the strength for the life of faith come from? Well, it's, it's ultimately, as we see here, here being Genesis 24, it's rooted in a bold confidence of the nature of our Creator God. Strength for the life of faith and faithful practice of the life of faith is rooted in a bold confidence of the nature of our Creator. As a point of review, we are 24 chapters into the first book of the first five books of the Bible, commonly referred to as the Torah or the Pentateuch. This particular section is written by Moses to the people of God as they prepare to take possession of the land that had been promised to them by the Lord, and at the same time, the land that had been all but rejected by those who had come before them. Those who had lost sight of God's power and the assuredness of His promise, doubting God's commitment. To deliver on his word. Does that sound at all familiar? Yes. (laughs) Absolutely it does. It's the story from the beginning. This doubting of the faithful word of the Lord. Here we observe observe a, a people who are preparing to take possession of a land that had been promised to them as an entire generation had passed away as a result of their unwillingness to truly believe in and rest on the promises of the Lord. The primary themes of much of Genesis make sense in light of this understanding. And Moses writes, remind the people of God of the working out of his will in a world that is broken and rebellious. At times it seems as though evil is exercising its dominance. 
Yet, on countless occasions, God clarifies the narrative. Right? He reminds his people that this is his story. This story is, is his story. His story of, of redeeming a people to the glory of his name and for their eternal good. Now, last week, I posed to you the following question. Right? One that demands deep consideration of gospel application for life. And the question was this. Okay, so we're, we're going back and we're revisiting for just a moment. Again, this will continue to flush itself out today. What does it look like to apply the doctrine of God's providence in and to everyday life? What, is it, what does it mean to apply the doctrine of God's providence? That is our embrace of this idea that God exercises ultimate control and ultimate power and ultimate authority over these big moments as well as the seemingly small, what we might describe as, as insignificant ones at times. How does, how does our understanding of God's providence in everyday life shape the way that we go about living the life of faith? That's what we're talking about. That's what we see from Genesis chapter 24. We observe here what the answer to this question looks like. From Abraham... From Eleazar, right? Let's consider how we we saw this on display last week. Abraham's convinced that Isaac's place is not in his homeland, but here, waiting on the Lord's time, calls upon his servant, Eleazar, to return to the land that he left in Genesis chapter 12 to find for his son a bride. Remember, we're on the heels, right? At least in terms of our reading, the death of Sarah, like a faithful and loving wife. Abraham's faithful and loving wife. And we said last week, perhaps it was the death of Sarah that led to some type of urgency as it pertains to ensuring and establishing and finding, seeking, bringing home a wife for Isaac. We don't know, but we do know that that is a major goal of Genesis chapter 12, or of Genesis chapter 24, I'm sorry. To which Eleazar responds to the request of Abraham here in Genesis chapter 24. Absolutely. Right? You, you want me to go and to find for your son a bride in your homeland? So there's a little bit of a dialogue as to what this looks like and some questions that are in need of, of flushing themselves out. But, but ultimately we come to this place of yes. As we move forward in the story, last week in verses 10 and 11, we saw Moses recording the preparation and journey of Eleazar to Mesopotamia and the city of Nahor. In verses 12 and 14, we see a series of events that inform a right response to a right understanding of the character of God. What does that mean? What are you, what are you saying? Well, as Eleazar comes to the well, he what? He prays. All of the preparation that had led to this particular moment results here, verses 12 through 14, in a prayer. At which point we said, yes, right? This is it. This is what it looks like to, to live in the everyday with a God-informed understanding of God's providence. Right? Action that is, that is coupled with Reliance and, and confession, these were points of emphasis from last week. 
Right, Eleazar shows us what it looks like to move forward in confidence that the Lord is both intimately acquainted and involved in his creation. What do you believe about God, right, this morning? Like the God that you worship, what do you believe about who he is and the way that he functions? We see a, a, some great insight from Genesis chapter 24 as to what Eleazar believes. He's acquainted with and he is involved in his creation. As a result, Eleazar leans in. Right, he looks to him right, and asks that the Lord might indeed do this, do this work. A confidence that is confirmed through the events of this passage where we find ourselves this morning. Look with me at verse 15. Again, this was towards the, the tail end of our time together last week. Before he had finished speaking, this is, this, is, uh, this is Eleazar offering up prayer to the Lord as he arrives here in the city at the well, apparently a prime location for scouting out life material, okay? Before he finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Verse 16, the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. What does it look like to, to, to rest in this understanding of God's providential work in and through everyday life events. Here we observe Eleazar praying and asking the Lord to bless this mission. And before he is even able to complete his prayer, we see that the Lord is working. He's working now and that he has been working in order to orchestrate this sequence of events. Rebecca would proceed to provide water to Eleazar as well as his ten camels. Impressive in light of some of the details that we drew out last week. In fact, this is where we finished off. We were left with this question hanging in the air, weren't we? Right, this, this question, would Rebecca be the one? As Eleazar has embraced this mission to go out for his master and secure a wife for his son, is this the one? Is this the one? As we continue our, our transition out of this display of God's guidance for his people, we look ahead to the remaining portion of Genesis chapter 24. Last week we looked at, at point one. This week we're looking at points two and hopefully three. So what, what did we see? Well, here it was. God guards his people. We see God's guarding of his people here in Genesis chapter Chapter 24, verses 22 through 49. Here we observe the rising action and what I think is the climax of this particular scene. God guarding his people. And then finally, we observe God's comfort for his people. God guards his people and God, and God comforts his people. This is where I hope that we would, we would land this morning as we close out or seek to close out this chapter. So let's look at our second observation. God's guarding of his people in verses 22 through 49. In response to Rebecca's kindness, verses 22 through 25, Eleazar gifts her with a gold ring and two bracelets for her arm before inquiring of her family and requesting a place to stay for the night, to which Rebecca replies, verse 24, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, who 
whom she bore to Nahor, she added. We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. While the events surrounding this encounter are not miraculous, they are certainly specific signals for success. Again, Eleazar is able to recognize this. Why? Well, because he's in rhythm. Right, Eleazar is in, he's in rhythm with the life of faith, super confident in his understanding of how God works. And so as we step back and we continue to explore okay, what it looks like to lean into and practice a life of faith resting in the providence of God, we must say that it requires that we are familiar with the way that the Lord works, which will in turn provide for us rhythms for our life. Here we observe Eleazar being familiar. He recognizes the rhythms of the Lord. Now in just a moment, we're going to lean into God's guarding of Eleazar, which I think is a major point within this passage. But before we get there, I think that we see this, this beautiful illustration of a right response to God's goodness and work in verse 26. So here's what we're going to do and for just a moment. Okay, we're going to talk about worship. So let me, let me just prepare you. Okay? Over the next few minutes, we're going to be talking about, about worship. Right? What that looks like and why we practice it the way that we do. Look with me at verse 26. All of this in response to, to the Lord's providential work. Right, and Eleazar's recognition of it. Living in rhythm with the Lord. The man bowed his head and what? Worshipped the Lord, verse 26, and said, okay, so we're, we're connecting, all right, the worship that we observe in verse 26 and that which follows in verse 27. In fact, I think that as we see what he is doing in verse 26, we are uh, informed as to what that looks like in verse 27, not just in the life of Eleazar, but in the lives of you and I. What does it look like to practice Worship. Look at what it says in verse 27. This is, this is Eleazar's worship. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Eleazar's response to the love of God and his faithfulness toward Abraham as well as his leading produces worship in and from Eleazar directed towards God. Did you, did you catch it? You see, the emphasis is here totally on what God has done in this scene. But the emphasis is on what, what God has done. The emphasis is on who God is. Look back with me at verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who what? Who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. So there's that element. And then we transition to the end of the verse. The Lord has led me. All of this hinges on, on who God is and what God is doing. God acts towards Abraham and toward Eleazar. A movement that produces, get this, worship. A movement that produces worship to which we say this. Bless you. That worship like this is 
the only right response to God's faithful consideration and work. Worship like this is the only right and appropriate response to God's faithful consideration and work. Here, God's consideration, his steadfast Lord toward Abraham and his leading of Eleazar. Worship is a major theme in this passage. Okay, worship is a, is a major theme in this passage, a byproduct of functioning within the rhythms of faith and a God-centered view of the world and its events. Now, we're going to say some things about worship now. But one thing that I think that we need to be aware and considerate of is that worship is, is not something that is limited to our practice within this particular place. Now, it is certainly that, and we're going to talk about those things in just a moment. But what we see here is that Eleazar's understanding of God's providential work in this situation informs and creates opportunity for worship, doesn't it? Does that make sense? Are you guys with me? Right, like he, he's recognizing the rhythms of the Lord. He is, he is aware, right? Lord, uh, give us, give me success in this mission. Like, help me to, 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 to see and to find a wife that is indeed suitable for, for my master's son Isaac, right? Before he's done praying, here comes Rebecca, who like is really eager to just like tote water jars, apparently. Eleazar's in rhythm, isn't he? Right? He, he offers praise, worship to God. Why? Well, because he's, he's thinking this way. It's the way that he sees the world, right? Or is this the way that we see the world? I think it's sometimes easy for us to, to not see the world this way. Again, our challenge last week was, are we functioning within the rhythms of culture? Or are we functioning within the rhythms of our creator, right? Like, are we, are we thinking about the world that way? Are we, are we seeing life's events through that lens? As we seek to, to lean into and live and practice a life of, of faithful obedience in light of what he has done for us. Worship is a major theme and a byproduct of functioning within the rhythms of faith. And a God-centered view. A God-centered view. Of the world and its events. Now, given... That this is such a major theme, it would be helpful for you and I to consider God-honoring, God-centered worship. Given that our desire ought to be to practice it. Again, not only as we are gathered here, though certainly as we are gathered here, but with our whole lives. After all, this is what worship is, and it's what we observe here in Genesis chapter 24 from Eleazar. And so what do, we, what do we learn about worship from Genesis chapter 24 and Eleazar's example? Are you guys ready for this? Note-taking opportunity right here. Be prepared. What do we learn about, about worship from Genesis 24 and Eleazar's example? Number one, okay? Number one, it, it flows out of a humble spirit given... The realization that it is God himself who enables it. Okay, worship flows out of a humble spirit. It flows out of a humble spirit, right? And it fosters within us a, a humble spirit, given that there is this recognition that it is God himself who enables it. Let's say it this way. Here's what we're saying. Right, that, that apart from his work in us, worship of God cannot come from us. Did you get it? Right? Apart from God's work in us, worship that is directed 
toward him cannot come from us. Now, we might offer it to other things, right? We might offer it to ourselves or um, to our own, our own tiny little kingdoms or our own earthly desires to the flesh, right? Idols. But we can't offer it to God. Not apart from his work. Not apart from his work in us. That realization right there fosters a posture of humility, doesn't it? Right, because we, we recognize how um, it begins. Right? We recognize how it, how it starts, and that apart from the Lord's initiation, then there is no overflow, right? There is no, there is no worship, unless he does that, unless he, unless he produces that within us. Right? Unless he gives us the capability to, to offer up our praise and worship to him. right? To make our worship pleasing to him. Because let's say this, that our, our worship, apart from the redemptive work of Christ on the cross, is not pleasing. How do we know that? Well, the New Testament paints this really clear picture of what our righteousness is apart from the work of Jesus. What is it? It's filthy rags. Right? Like it is, it is not in and of itself pleasing. Like our worship is not pleasing apart from the Lord's initiation. Apart from his creating in us the ability to offer to him that which is ultimately pleasing. All of that <laughs> creates a humble posture. It creates a humble spirit. As we come together in this place and we worship our king, we can say this. Right? That, that our being able to offer our worship to him is ultimately a gift from him. Does that make sense? Are we together? So, yeah, we're, we're humble. Like it creates within us, it fosters within us a, a humble spirit. That's number one. Let's continue on. Number two. While worship does not always result in audible involvement... On our part, certainly there are times in which it does. Again, look with me at verse 26. The man bowed his head and he worshipped the Lord and said. Right, there's, this, there's this audible response to this recognition of the Lord's work. This brings worship into the public sphere, doesn't it? Right, the worship is not simply this, this private act, although it is a private act. Like we go about our lives worshipful. Right? We offer our, our worship even when those outside don't, don't recognize it, right? Or maybe are not there to see it. But certainly there is this sense in which a people of faith lean into right, and practice public worship. Audible worship that brings others into the act, making them a part. Think about the way that this functions here at Christ the King. From corporate readings to public prayer to giving our voice in song, these are acts of worship as we gather together. And what is involved in that? Our voices, right? Why is it a big deal to sing, <laughs> right? Like, well, because it's worship, right? And, and there is this audible element to our worship. Why is it a big deal that we corporately read and recite creed together? Well, here's why. Like, it's, it's, it's a form of worship. 
That changes the way that we engage when we, when we recognize it that way, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Or is it just me? I think it does. I think it changes the way that we lean in and the way that we practice when we recognize that it is ultimately an act of offering unto the Lord. That when we sing, we sing not so much concerned with what those around think about our singing, but we, we offer it to the Lord, knowing that, that in Christ, even the most challenging of sounds is indeed pleasing to Him. These acts serve to accomplish a number of things. Okay, they serve to, to encourage God's people while emphasizing our distinctiveness in Christ before the world. We talk a lot about the various elements at play as we offer our voices to the Lord in song. What happens in this moment as we are gathered together? And we say this, that it, that it, it serves as a source of encouragement for God's people. Because I don't know where you've been this week. You've been in the world, and I know this about the world, that the world is a tough place. And that as a people who are, who are called to, to live set apart in a place that is, is very difficult, there are certainly weeks and days and seasons and moments of discouragement. As we come together and we gather as God's people and we offer our voices, we are again being reminded that we are not alone. That we're not alone, that we are not left unto ourselves, but that God has given the gift of His Spirit, which produces this humble posture within us, making possible, pleasing, and, and acceptable worship. But also that we have God's people with us. I was reading a great article that informs some of the things that we're talking about this morning uh, by Crossway uh, just a few days ago about worship and how, how it is so beneficial for God's people gathered together to hear the voices of the saints. Before you come to church, do you ever consider the fact that you are indeed valued by the fellowship? That like your, your being here... Right, whether you're serving in engagement or in, in King's Kids, whether you're, you're up here on stage singing into a microphone or, or unpacking a text, right, that, that your being here and your offering your voice is service to God's people. It is. Right, it is. Serves as a source of encouragement. Not only that, but it, it's an opportunity to live mission. Right? Because there is this, this realization that as we, as we are gathered together, that there is something that is unique and distinct about God's people. Right? It's undeniable. It's inescapable. It ought to be. All of these, these acts serve to, to draw out for us and for others the distinctiveness of Christ and our distinction now from the world. Acts that remind us of God's goodness and love extended to us needy sinners as he has chosen to reveal himself to us. Acts that remind us that God has called us into worship and that he now enables our worship. We've got to continue on, but we're saying some really stellar things about worship. Number three. 
flows from a humble spirit. Number two, it's at times audible. And number three, God's word shapes the spirit of our worship. Here's what I mean. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. (coughs) Excuse me. Given that we are now made alive through the death and resurrection of Jesus, faith in him, we no longer offer ourselves as dead people, but living people who have been made to grasp by grace as best as we can the majesty of God and his working for our good and joy. The fact that we are able or or made to worship calls us into deeper and more authentic worship because we understand that God has produced it in us. That God calls us and enables us to appreciate his beauty. Had he not chosen to do this, again, there would be no worship. Finally, as we see in verses 29 through 33, especially as we consider the character of Laban, worship serves to reinforce one's confidence in God and commitment to the life of faith. Let me say that one more time because we're making a slight transition, but we're continuing to unpack the benefits of worship within the life of the believer. Verses 29 through 33, we're considering the character of Laban and how worship serves to reinforce one's confidence in God and his commitment to the life of faith for you and I. Look with me at verse 29. Rebecca had a a brother whose name was Laban. Scene shift. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring, verse 30. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man who uh, the man spoke to me, he went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. Let's say a few things about this scene. Initially, it appears as though as though Laban mirrors the service and hospitality of Rebecca. Seems like a solid enough guy, right? Making the extra effort to really reach out to Eleazar as he transitions into into camp. However, Moses includes a number of details that are likely designed to shift the way that we see Laban as well as the Lord's work here in Eleazar. Moses mentions specifically that Laban notices the jewelry that Rebekah had been given by Eleazar. In Genesis 29 and 30, we will again see Laban. So this isn't the last time that we'll hear from Laban. We'll see Laban as he tricks Jacob into 14 years of service before cheating his nephew out of his rightful wages. All of this shapes our understandings of the motives of Laban as we transition in this story. It would appear as though they are impure. He notices 
his sister walking back home and she's got some bracelets on and a ring. Hmm. How can I leverage this for my own good? Right? For my own my own personal benefit. Impure motives. The Lord, however, has other plans, as we will notice. Look with me at verse 33. <coughs> In verse 33, there's a, a feast that is set before Eleazar. We're rolling out the red carpet here, making every effort. Yet, he remains focused on the goal. How does he respond? Verse 33, he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have come to say. Right? My, 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 my purpose here is intentional. Right? I'm, I'm on a mission and there is no, uh, there's no distracting me from that. Right? Nothing, nothing shiny over here right? or this spread lay before me is going to distract me or deter me from the accomplishing of my purpose. My commitment to the mission of my master. It's at this point that we see Eleazar's detailed retelling of the events that had transpired that brought him here. Now, when Josh read that uh, for us the past two weeks, we skipped that portion. Because it is uh, almost exactly um, the the same telling that we observed earlier on. We've seen the sequence of events, and now with this spread laid before him, Eleazar says, listen, I'm not saying anything or doing anything until we've talked about what I've, what I've come here to do. There's impure motive from Laban's perspective, from Laban's point of view. I feel confident saying that. Yet in it and through it, God shows his sovereign power to bring about his will through both the believer as well as the idolatrous. We learn something here. And we learn something here about how God works. We learn something here about the sovereignty of God. And it becomes real easy to to pile on Laban for just a second. But what I think would be most helpful for you and I um, is to to lean into our inner Laban. (laughs) Right? I think it's easy to paint ourselves as as the heroes in a lot of these stories, right? And And to identify most with perhaps Eleazar, to which we go, man, yes, fixated on the goal. Focused on the mission, not to be distracted, not to be deterred. Yet I think that that we can very easily recognize our own own disposition at times towards self-centeredness. Laban's response is is rooted in in sin and self-absorption. The law of God draws out similar practices within you and I, doesn't it? While the the bold commitment of Eleazar to the mission reminds us of the gospel's work in our hearts, producing a commitment to to something, producing a a commitment to someone that is greater than ourselves. 
Let, let's lean in and let's let's embrace and seek to to come to a greater understanding and realization of our dispositions towards self-absorption at times. Right? How will this sequence of events serve to best benefit me? Right? How can I benefit, and how can how can I be advanced through this scene as it plays itself out? This is not what the life of faith looks like. Right? This is not the life that we are, are called into. Right? As, we, as we transition to the New Testament and we consider the, the life and work of Christ, we observe not, a, um, not a, a disposition towards self-absorption, but towards self-sacrifice, don't we? Right? We're pouring oneself out. Lives of, of, of service. Focused, fixed on a on a love of God and a love for neighbor. Or we go to the cross and we and we observe the clearest picture of this, don't we? Or Christ Jesus, the, the Lamb of God. And perfect before the foundation of the world. Giving him himself. Or pouring out himself. A lot of times, again, we like to, to make ourselves the hero. We like to, to focus and go, look at all the ways that I'm, I'm living this and practicing this. But I think that if we're honest, which we ought to be, our tendencies are oftentimes geared the other direction. And so, so perhaps at this point, we, we corporally, individually and corporally come to this, this point of confession. I seek to better understand those elements within our own heart and to, and to see them slain, right? To see them killed, desiring again to live in complete service and servitude to Christ Jesus and his desire, confident that the gospel is capable of producing this type of heart, producing this type of commitment. If you're here this morning and you're going, yes, self-absorption wears the crown in my life, the answer is not to, to like bootstrap it. Right? The answer is not to, 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 to work harder and try harder, although there might be some element of that that ought to be true, that we might need to do that. But certainly it begins with going back to the gospel. It begins by looking to Christ and resting in Christ as we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Here the mission is, is a bride for Isaac. Context, Genesis 24. Let's step back and let's consider God's mission in and through you and I. What is it? Well, it's a bride for himself. Here we observe a, a woman who is, who is beautiful. As we consider the redemptive narrative, we see a bride that is made beautiful. Oh, a wife that is made beautiful through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so the final question that we are left with is this. How will the mission of Eleazar conclude? As we lean into and look to Genesis chapter 24, all of the pieces seem to be laying themselves out beautifully, don't they? But what will the resolution be? We're observing this, this rise in the story. How will Laban, his family, respond to this news, to the request of Eleazar, will he be successful in securing a wife for Isaac? This leads us to our, our final observation, at which point I want us to go to verse 50. <coughs> Excuse me. 
Eleazar retells the story. Verse 50, Laban and, and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. The Lord grants success. Right? This is it. It's Rebecca. She's coming home with Isaac. A wife or with with Eleazar for Isaac. A wife has been secured. Again, Eleazar functioning in the rhythms of faith responds appropriately in verse 52. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. The servant brought out jewelry and of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebecca. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. He and the men who were with him ate and drank and they spent the night there. When they rose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Now listen to this. Listen to what happens here. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. Now, remember what we've already said about the Lord's guarding. The Lord's guarding of Eleazar, the Lord's guarding of his people. We see that come into play here again. There's this this last-ditch effort. The night before, everything seems to be going really well. Everything's tied up nice and neat. There's a bow on top of this. And yet now, there's this effort to to slightly shift the plan, isn't it? How would Eleazar respond to their request? Verse 56. But he said to them, no, don't delay me. And I'm not going to be delayed. Since the Lord has, has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. The night before, it was the spread. Now, oh, just this 10 days. There's zero compromise from Eleazar here. Why? Again, rhythm, right? Focus, the life of faith. Send me away that I may go to my master, verse 57. They said, well, hey, let us call the young woman and ask her. They called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? Man, Rebecca is, is hard, y'all. <laughs> Right? Like Rebecca is, is, she is there. She's watering camels, and now her response here. The last part of 58, she says, I will go. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men, and they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Oh, they cannot even begin to comprehend the lengths by which God would go to make this prayer a reality. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. This is what the Lord's doing, isn't it? This is what the Lord is doing through Genesis. He is is developing, he is preserving a people, a nation, from which the seed promised in Genesis chapter 3 would come. Verse 61. 
Then Rebekah and her young uh, women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now, here's we're seeing from Isaac now, verse 62. This is like, a lot of this involves Isaac, and yet we haven't seen or heard from Isaac. Now here's Isaac. Isaac had returned. He was dwelling in the Negev, and Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel, and she said to the servant, Who is that man? Right, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she She took her veil. She covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. And she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. God is faithful. Let me say it again. God is faithful. Okay, God is is, is faithful and Isaac here is given a wife. A wife whom he, verse 67, loves. I love the way that that's drawn out. A wife who who comforts him following the loss of Sarah. There's now a, a new matriarch within the family who would indeed serve as a blessing well beyond her years. Within Genesis chapter 24, Eleazar displays a commitment to the task. And in this concluding scene, we observe a consummation. A marriage. In the book of Genesis, we are confronted with the problem of sin and evil. Its presence in us and in our world. All in light of this promise to defeat the snake through the seed of the woman. As he redeems the nation. Culminating with... Now we're talking redemptive narrative at this point. A wedding. From Genesis chapter 24, success. A a bride secured for her husband. The message of redemption is that at the cross and through the resurrection, Christ secures for himself... A bride. From Genesis chapter 24 to to the redemptive narrative as a, a whole, we observe the faithfulness of God on display. That sounds like a broken record at this point, doesn't it? How many times have we said that over the course of the last, like, five months? God's faithfulness to his mission. Here, securing a bride for Isaac, by which the nation would continue to to grow and to advance and to prosper. But ultimately, all of this comes to a head with Christ Jesus, 
right, who secures for himself a bride who is made beautiful through the sacrifice that he makes in our place upon the cross, ransoming us unto himself, making us, as we have said on countless occasions throughout this story, pleasing unto him. Christ secures for himself a bride. He loves us. Right? And he makes us lovely to himself. Through us, he is committed to this work of extending and, and displaying his love to the world as sinners are rescued from his wrath and brought into fellowship with him. A part of the body, the bride. From Genesis chapter 24, we are encouraged from beginning to end to embrace a faith-informed life. Right? A faith-informed life trusting in and acting out of this deep understanding of how God works. Do you get that? Right? Do we get that? Do we understand from Genesis chapter 24 how, how God works? How his providence unfolds daily in our lives, leading us to, to live and practice worship, resting in the comforts that he provides, the security that he provides. Genesis chapter 24, a bride is secured. Redemptive narrative, a bride is secured. And we are, let's conclude with this idea, we are safe in the hands of the bridegroom. Or we are safe in Christ. We are comforted in Christ. Here we see a bride who serves to comfort her husband. For you and I, we are comforted through the difficulties of this life as a pilgrim people, a faith practicing people by Christ. So lean into, as we close out our time, the comfort that Christ provides as he guards his people, a people who rest in his providential work in and through our world. Hey, let's pray together.